if somebody knows that I have five kids or hears that I have five kids, usually first question is, are you religious? You don't look religious or, or orthodox. Nope, not religious, just crazy. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to the Taub Center podcast, Data Point. I'm Idoki Nun, and today we'll be kicking off our new series, Israel 2040, exploring the trends that will shape Israel two decades from now. And what could be a better way to begin that discussion than at the very beginning with births and a deep dive into the question, why do Israelis have so many children? And why does it matter? You're listening to Data Point, stories behind the scenes of the Israeli economy. Data, Data Point. Point, a podcast by the Taub Center. Hi, I'm Tamar Khafshush. I'm 36 years old. I live in Haifa with my husband and five kids. To better understand the phenomenon of Israelis having lots of children, we sat down with Tamar Khafshush, who's living this reality as a mother of five kids born over the span of seven and a half years. It's Shulev, who's just turned 11. Naomi is turning 10 next month. Ziv is eight. Shiraz is five. And Dina is three and a half. For Tamar and her husband, having many children wasn't always a given. It was actually not planned to begin with. I never thought of myself as having a big family. It was never a dream of mine. But I met my husband and we hit it off and we got married and we said, okay, we'll start with one. We'll see how things go. We saw one. We really liked it. We did number two. They're all planned out. It was never a coincidence. We planned each and every one, even though they're so close together. Um, and it was always, okay, you know, one is going well. Let's go for two. We did two. Okay, great. Now let's do three. What's driving the decision? You don't sit there and say, wow, I really want to not sleep for the next, you know, three years of my life and have somebody who has complete ownership of my time and sanity. It's, it's not a rational decision. It's just something that it's, it's a longing and it's an urging. You can't really describe why. There's no pro and cons list. It really explains why you do it. It's crazy and it's intense and, you know, you can pull your hair out just from the frustration, but it's just also super rewarding. As Tamar explains... People are surprised when they encounter her family for the first time. People are very shocked to hear that I have five kids. They say, oh, are you Wonder Woman? You're Superwoman? How do you do it all? Tamar's family is indeed out of the ordinary, but it isn't actually that exceptional by Israeli standards. The average Israeli woman will have 3.1 children by the time she reaches her late 40s. In all other developed countries, the average is 1.7 and coming down. That's Professor Alex Weinrib, Research Director at the Taub Center and Professor of Demography at the University of Texas at Austin. So we're operating in a completely different dimension than all other developed countries. You might think that Israel's high fertility comes from its more traditional populations, like the ultra-Orthodox Haredim and the Arab Israelis, but Alex explains that this alone does not account for Israel's exceptional fertility. It's certainly true that ultra-Orthodox have higher fertility. When we divide up the Israeli population, so in the ultra-Orthodox population, the average is about 6.5 kids per woman, whereas in the secular population, it's 2.5 or so. So they certainly pull up the average, but ultra-Orthodox women are only about 15% of the Jewish women in their peak reproductive years. That means they don't account for the whole phenomenon. It's important to note that the average of two and a half kids per secular woman is still much higher than the 1.7 average in the developed world. Also, fertility has increased for secular Jewish women since the 90s and hasn't been decreasing in recent years, in sharp contrast to what's been going on among Arab women. The Arab population 20 years ago had higher fertility. 
but it's now the same level as Jewish fertility. So 20 years ago, I would have said, yes, they're helping pull up the average. Now that's no longer the case. So as Alex said, we operate in a completely different dimension from other developed countries. And it's not just coming from the Haredi and Arab populations. This is also what Tamal sees when she looks at her family, friends, and colleagues. Her family stands out, but not that much. For a secular woman to have five children is still very unique. I know of many secular people, friends of mine, that have four kids and peers. Five in an urban secular setting is still very, very, uh, it's an outlier. My husband and I both have religious parts of our family. So, for example, my brother and sister are both religious. My brother has seven kids. My sister has six. So in my family, I'm in good stead. But my closest friend has two kids. Another very close friend has three. But my son's best friend is one of four boys, and they're secular. So it's it's really a mixed bag. Again, four kids in a secular household is not considered that uncommon anymore. Five is still pretty out there. With these trends... Israel's population looks completely different from populations in the rest of the developed world. I'm uh, Herbert L. Smith, and I'm professor of sociology at the University of Pennsylvania. We get some insight into this by speaking with Professor Herb Smith, an expert demographer and sociologist, who is one of the keynote speakers at the Taub Center's Herbert M. Singer International Policy Conference this year. Professor Smith told us what is happening in other developed countries. Most uh, developed countries have been um, aging now for 30, 40, 50 years. So uh, personally, uh, I, I have to say I'm about to become an old person. I'm about to turn 65. In the United States, there are lots of people like me. France looks pretty much the same. Germany, lots of people in what uh, they like to call late middle age, but I would just call early old age. As Herb explains, the aging population in most developed countries is caused by the combination of two factors, mortality and fertility. So basically, what we're into is a situation in which people mostly live uh, long lives and uh, don't have a particularly large number of children. And that creates um, these populations that we've never seen before, that is to say, populations with a heck of a lot of old people in them. The difference between the age structure in Israel and these other countries, can be imagined visually. One of the fun tools in demography is something that was called an age-sex pyramid. And let's get back to the word pyramid. When people think of pyramids, they think of the pyramids of Egypt. And of course, what did they look like? They had a very big base, and they tapered up to a point at the top. And when people started making graphs of what populations looked like by the age structure, They put a base down at the bottom, which was the number of zero to four-year-olds. And then on that, they put a base, which was the number of five to nine-year-olds and so on. And back at a time when fertility was reasonably high, the lower things were always larger than the ones above them. So the pyramids ended up looking like the classic Egyptian pyramids. Israel's population still looks like this, but other developed countries, not so much. But of course, what happened over time is As fertility started falling, the older people weren't creating enough people to have a base. So the pyramids started looking like other things. A pear, for example. That's the shape demographers use to describe countries like the U.S., which experienced a baby boom in the mid-20th century and now have fewer children and elderly, with more people in the middle. 
So why is Israel's age structure a classic Egyptian pyramid, when the rest of the developed world looks more like a pear? As Alex explains, Israel, for some reason, doesn't follow a number of demographic rules that we would expect from looking at other developed countries. For example, Israeli women have many children, even though they start having children relatively late. So the age at first birth has been going up and up and up. In all other developed countries, that's associated with a downturn in fertility. But here, basically, even though we now have much lower fertility in people's 20s than we did 15 or 20 years ago, we have much higher fertility in people's 30s, and that's outweighed any loss of fertility in their 20s. What else? When you look at other developed countries which have relatively high fertility, and by that I mean fertility of about 1.8 kids per woman, 1.9, they almost all have really high rates of childbearing outside of marriage. In countries like Iceland, for example, about 70% of kids are born outside of marriage. Sweden, it's 60%. The average in all other developed countries is 40%. In Israel, it's less than 10%. So somehow we still have high fertility, but it's all marital fertility. Another way that Israel breaks the rules is that educated women also have many children. When you look at the TFR of educated women here, university-educated women. TFR, by the way, stands for the total fertility rate. It is as high as the TFR of women who only finished secondary school. Whereas when you look at every other developed country, everyone, when a woman goes to university and completes her degree, she has fewer kids than those who finished secondary school. And that has important implications because it means that kids are being born into families with more educated parents. Why? Because educated women tend to marry educated men. So the parents are more educated. They're having them later. They have careers which are a little bit more stable, so they're a little bit wealthier. So one of the direct consequences of that socially is that in Israel, you don't have the same concentrations of high fertility areas in poverty-stricken areas. And that's completely different to the pattern you find in most other developed countries where the areas with the highest fertility are the poorest areas with the least educated parents. Tamar is precisely one of those educated women. I have a bachelor's degree in computer science and mathematics from the Technion. I've been working in the Israeli high-tech industry since 2005. Not only does Tamar work in high-tech, but so does her husband, Ohad. This makes it challenging to balance work and raising children. So it's hectic. It's crazy. The logistics are kind of out there. There are a few things going in our favor, though. First of all, for the past seven and a half years, I've been working 60%. So I work shorter days, which is a huge help. And also just the nature of high tech, it's very flexible. So it means that, you know, I can leave work now and I can reconnect in the evening. And especially since I have customers or colleagues working in the States, that means Uh, that is actually better for me because I can be with my kids in the afternoon, in the evening, and then connect to my computer and I can have a, a meeting at 8.30 or 9 because they can't really meet me before then anyways. When her first two kids were born, Tamar was working full-time. But when number three came, she decided she wanted to transition to part-time, something that the data show is pretty common in Israel. In general, about a third of Israeli women work part-time, compared to only 13% of men. Among working parents, women work about 23 hours a week on average, compared to 36 hours for men. But in order for Tamar to work part-time, she needed to leave her previous job. When I was on the maternity leave for uh, baby number three, 
there was a situation at work and I had gotten to the point and the kids were already growing up and I said, okay, I can't keep on with this kind of load at work and also all the constraints of home. So I asked for part-time. It wasn't available for me at that workplace. So I quit. And fortunately, through connections that I had made when I was working there, I was able to find 60% work very, very quickly. I was only unemployed for like two and a half weeks. Tamar isn't the only one of her colleagues with a large family. But she does say it's more unusual for women working in high tech to have so many kids. I have quite a few people in my company and also people that I've met from other places who have four kids and sometimes even five or six. Mostly those are all men. I have yet to meet and really know another woman in high tech who has five or six kids who is not religious. So how does Tamar manage? We'll get into that in a minute. But first, a word about the Taub Center. The Taub Center for Social Policy Studies in Israel is an independent, nonpartisan, socioeconomic research institute. The center provides decision makers and the public with research on the most pressing issues facing Israel in the areas of education, health, welfare, labor markets, and macroeconomics. In order to infuse Israel's policymaking with data-driven research and advance the well-being of all Israelis, you can learn more by checking out our website, taubcenter.org.il. When we left off, we were talking about how Tamar manages it all. First of all, despite the assumption of others that the tasks of raising children fall to her, she and her husband divide their responsibilities. There's just this sort of assumption that I take care of everything. That's the assumption of the environment. And sometimes myself, too, when I'm thinking about what needs to be done, I'll say, okay, I need to do this and this and this. And my husband's like, well, why do you need to take it all? You know, I'm, I'm also here. So... There's what we're aiming for, and then sometimes it can be a bit fluid. So laundry is almost always going to be his job. He takes care of it. I'm usually the one responsible for the shopping and the cooking. There's times when it works better and times when it doesn't. And there's just times that the house is a mess and, and the dishes are in the sink and, and, you know, things can wait. There are also times like that. Secondly, they've had help along the way. When baby number two was born, my oldest was a year, a month and a half old. It was quite a long time until I actually felt that I could handle being with two kids sanely by myself. Uh, so we had somebody coming over. We had a cleaning lady from the time I was pregnant with number two until about a year ago. My father was always very involved and my mother, too, um, especially in the beginning. Her health is not as great as it used to be. So my parents were always very involved. And we always made a conscious decision to live very close to my parents. That was one of the main reasons. As Alex points out, other Israelis also rely on grandparents and extended family. Because we live in close proximity to extended family, we can always call on Saba and Safta, you know, grandma and grandpa to come and, and you know, pick up the kids on Tuesdays and Thursdays. And it's not just you and your husband or you and your wife who are charged with taking full care of the kids. There is an extended family network that can help you. And that doesn't always exist, not in all countries. So the burden of child rearing financially and in terms of time is left only up to the, to the parents. Tamara and her husband also had help getting started financially, which contributed to their ability to raise a big family in a country where the cost of living is notoriously high. So we were lucky enough that we had some help from each side, my husband's family and, and my family, in buying our first apartment. And we were lucky enough that it was just before the prices went up. And we had lived with my parents before we got married. 
uh, as two high tech engineers making a nice salary. So so we so we came into the marriage in sort of stable financial waters and we don't really have expensive tastes. So we never really got to used to spending the maximum salary. And so that, that with the financial part, it was never a consideration. It was never, oh, do we have enough money to have another kid or do we not? Fortunately, we were never in that position. We'd never had to ask that. While the financial aspect isn't a burden to Tamar and her family, there are, of course, other challenges that arise when raising such a large family, like navigating the busiest parts of each day. Oh, they can be crazy on so many different levels. Uh, well, I guess one is usually when... Uh, you know, it's about 6.30 or 7, you have to get supper on the table and then supper and showers and bedtime. That's usually a pretty crazy time. Still, Tamar finds that people who don't experience it themselves sometimes overestimate the difficulty of raising five children. There's some things that just get easier when you have a large family. I think people kind of assume that you take one kid and you multiply that difficulty by five. And it's really, it's, it's not, it's different. Also, sometimes things that seem like they'd be very challenging, like having all her kids home during the coronavirus pandemic, turn out to be actually really wonderful. Actually, the corona, the, the quarantine period was a very positive experience for us. My husband and I have been continuously working from home since this all started, and we just really enjoyed the time together. Uh, we're used to going all over the place and doing all sorts of things and ferrying kids from one place to the other. Then all of a sudden, all that stopped. My oldest is in competitive acrobatic gymnastics, and he has five uh, practices a week. So we're not used to spending time with him as a family because almost every day from 5 to 8.30, he's in practice. And that means that he has to leave an hour before and he comes home and everybody's already asleep. So, so it was a nice surprise. And a nice change of pace to have him be a part of the family and to actually sit down and eat together as a family uh, and to see the kids and they just to see the kids play together and, and do things together and, you know, fight together and watch TV together and resolve conflicts together. And that was really nice. Getting the kids fed and showered, ferrying them around. These are some of the challenges that Tamal faces within her own family. And seeing them play and grow together are some of the benefits. But there are also larger challenges and benefits that Israel as a country faces because it has so many children. And this, of course, has implications for policy. On the one hand, we don't have some of the challenges that come with the demands of an aging population like other countries in the developed world. There's really this kind of conflict that is to say, when people are spending more and more money doing things for older people, they're going to spend less money for younger people. Here's Herb again. So we can generally think of education as being for the young, um, pensions as being for the old. Health, of course, goes both ways. If you help with early childhood health, prenatal care, things like that, that's a wonderful investment in people. If most of the health is going to um, keep uh, 85-year-olds alive so they can be 86-year-olds and 93-year-olds alive so they can be 94-year-olds, it's nothing but consumption. And uh, it's hard on a society. And eventually that tends to take away from investment in early childhood health. It tends to take away from investment in education. On the other hand, with the population growing as fast as it is in Israel, we need to run faster just to stay in place. When a population is doubling every 35 years, and that's what's happening in Israel, that means you have to provide more housing, you have to provide schools, 
You have to expand clinics and hospitals. You have to train teachers and nurses and doctors. You have to expand roads and public infrastructure. All these sorts of things which in a country which is not doubling or which is not even growing, and that's the case in many other developed countries, all they have to do is simply maintain what they have. So they have three hospitals in a 200 square mile area. Okay, so they have to maintain. Here we have to constantly expand and to build and to train more, etc. So in, in that respect, it takes a completely different outlook to planning. These changes are necessary just to keep up in the coming years with those who have already been born. And though there are some indications of a decline, it doesn't look like overall fertility in Israel will drop drastically anytime soon. Looking into the future is always a little difficult, and um, demographers have always had a much harder time trying to forecast fertility than things like mortality. We can say with certainty that fertility rates in the Arab population are coming down, and this has been happening very, very quickly. With Jewish fertility, all the indications are that fertility rates will remain stable in the Haredi community for the next 10 years or so. In the secular population, there seems to be the beginnings of a decline. And the question is whether, you know, as people become a little bit more socioeconomically challenged, it is getting more expensive to live here. There's a question about whether that will place more limits on people in terms of their childbearing choices. In addition to the need to keep up with necessary infrastructure, having a lot of children doesn't exempt Israel from implementing policy to address the needs of the elderly. Alongside its high fertility, the number of elderly in Israel is expected to double by 2040, which will increase demand for health and long-term care infrastructure. Having a lot of children also doesn't promise that all of those young people will contribute to the productivity of the country when they reach working age. The Haredi population, for example, has many children, but at the same time, they also have low employment rates among the men, who often study in yeshiva instead of participating in the labor markets. What's going on in Israel, it's fascinating for a, uh, you know, a developed economy. You guys have kind of interesting set of problems, which is probably useful for the rest of us to, <laughs> to look at, to realize that just focusing on one goal alone, like having a lot of young people, isn't necessarily going to solve income transfer problem. That is... Just having a lot of young people doesn't necessarily mean that the young will provide Israel with the means that the country needs to be able to care for the old. Even with all the research that's been done on fertility trends in Israel and how exceptional they are, one big question remains open. Why? What is motivating Israelis to defy all expectations and have so many children? You might think it's a Jewish thing, but the data show that Jews outside Israel don't have as many kids. It's a particular, particular Israeli Jewish thing. And there's something about this country, land of milk and honey and high fertility. There's something special here. So, for example, you take someone here, here who self-identifies as secular. On average, somebody like that will have, you know, I mean, two and a half to 2.75 kids. And somebody like them who is an assimilated Jew, as they'd call them, outside Israel, they would have about 1.4 kids. There's something here which pushes Jewish women who are secular to have almost twice as many kids as people like them outside Israel. Tamar's experience also reflects this. She lived in the U.S. before moving to Israel in ninth grade and still has family there. While she hasn't kept in touch with many friends from those early days, she sees that her family is quite an outlier compared to the people she grew up with. From what I can tell by Facebook, I think that most of them are either unmarried or don't seem to have kids, or some that I was less close to have one or two. 
So from all the people that I grew up around, I'm the only one who has a large family. Another theory is that government policies in Israel encourage high fertility. But the mouse says she doesn't really see this in practice. I recently had a conversation with a friends of mine about, about, you know, why are people in Israel having so many kids, even though it defies all logic? And he said, oh, well, you know, the, the country helps out the families to do it. And that's why people can have so many kids. And just seeing the day to day, I don't really feel that much of the country helping out financially. I mean, you know, you get a certain subsidy after a child is born, but it's It's pretty laughable. If, if I didn't have the money, that's not what would help out. Uh, and if since I do have the money, it's not it's not what's really going to help me. As Alex says, it may be less that the government encourages fertility and more that it doesn't discourage it. The state is not getting in the way of people achieving their fertility goals in the way that's the case in most countries in Europe, where, for example, there in surveys, when you compare people's answers to a question, What's your ideal number of kids? Like how many kids would you like to have? And then you look at how many kids they actually have. There's a very large gap. Whereas here, the gap between what they say their ideal number is and what their number of kids they actually have is much smaller. There's no one conclusive answer about why Israelis have so many kids, but both Tamar and Alex have some theories of their own. I think there are a few different things at play here. I think one is that secular and religious life is a little bit more intertwined in Israel. Most people have family or close friends who are religious or who have larger families. It's much more feasible to have large family get-togethers here in Israel. You have larger weddings, you have larger bar mitzvahs, and you just are in these situations where you can see larger groups of people and, and specifically kids get together. So I think it's not quite as alien a thought. Among the key reasons are, it's, it's just something which I want to do. Is that like, you know, I mean, I want to see a little me, I want to see a little me and, and my husband and my wife. There's something about, it's, it's a meaningful symbol of, of keeping families alive. So one of the special things about Israel is that those of us who stay in the country, we live close to brothers and sisters and parents and uncles and aunts and cousins, etc. So there are always family gatherings. And there's an expectation of having kids and something meaningful about playing that role of also providing kids to the family. So I think that's an important part. And then there's this, you know, old joke about like Israelis always doing what their friends and neighbors do, right? So, you know, when Subaru came, they, everyone bought Subarus. And when Mitsubishi came, everybody bought Mitsubishis. And when everyone buys this, every, everybody buys it. And so your friends will have kids. It's time to have a kid. You just do it. Well, we're, we're, very, we're very conformist in that way. Once you get to ages 35 and up, you start to see significant numbers of women who are saying, you know what, I haven't found the perfect man or I haven't found an imperfect man who I'm willing to have a kid with, um, but I'm still, I'm still going to go ahead and have a child because there's something pushing them, something cultural in Israel pushing them to, to have it anyway. So how many kids do you have? I have four kids. <laughs> so you're part of the statistic. I am certainly part of the statistic. I think we're also a lot less of a formal society. You know, you don't get up and, and put on a tie and a suit and go to work and you're not expected to wear a certain dress protocol to go someplace. It's, it's very casual dress-wise. Uh, there's a lot less formality, for example, at work between the boss and the worker. It's, 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 it's a lot more laid back. Um, and I think that sort of laid back attitude is what helps have a larger family. Because it's never going to be perfect, and it's never going to be you above them, and you're never going to get everybody completely dressed up and in clean clothes. Something's going to happen, and I think if, 
if you already have this mindset, which is kind of the Israeli mindset of it'll be okay. Yeah, but say they'll. It sets you up more for, for the dynamic that is a larger family. Thank you to Tamar Chavshush, Professor Alex Weinreb, and Professor Herb Smith. This episode was produced by Tamar Friedman-Wilson and Dior Moag. Editing and sound by me and the rest of the team at Podcastico. Special thanks to Professor Avi Weiss, Susie Pat Benvenisti, and Anat Selakoren. And a huge thank you to our sponsor, the Herbert and Nell Singer Foundation, for making this episode possible as part of the Taub Center's annual Herbert M. Singer International Policy Conference. This year, focusing on Israel's unique demography, its implications, and planning for the future. To learn more about the conference, please visit our website at taubcenter.org.il. T-A-U-B-C-E-N-T-E-R dot O-R-G dot I-L. To stay updated on all things Taub Center, sign up for our monthly newsletter through our website and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. And if you're interested in giving us feedback or sponsoring future episodes of this podcast, be in touch at podcast at taubcenter.org.il. Stay tuned for more Hebrew episodes of the Taub Center's Israel 2040 series, sponsored by the Herbert and Nell Singer Foundation. I'm Ido Kainan. Until next time. And when are you planning your sixth kid? Well, my husband would have loved to have number six just after number five. I'm okay with waiting until grandchildren to have the next baby. It, not my baby, but their baby. Data Point. Data Point. A podcast by the Taub Center.